Hello and welcome to episode 51 of the UK True Crime Weekly podcast. I'm Adam. Firstly, a huge thank you to new Patreon supporter Shane. Cheers Shane. I really appreciate your support. Today we head to Scotland in 2011. It's a terrible tale of men wanting to be the top dog in a small town, feuds and revenge, all ending in unimaginable horror. I hope you enjoy it as much as I've enjoyed researching the story. Before we begin, I want to make you aware of a new podcast by Radio Wolfgang called Unburnable about a pretty unique court case coming out in Norway. Two environmental groups, Greenpeace and Nature and Youth, have decided to fight climate change in a completely new way. They are taking the Norwegian government to court over their decision to open up the Arctic to oil drilling, arguing that any oil taking out from these new fields will be what's known as unburnable carbon. We've already discovered enough oil that, if burnt, will raise the planet's temperature to very dangerous levels. So these guys are actually going to sue the Norwegian government and are doing so by using Norway's own constitution, which safeguards the rights of future generations to a clean and healthy environment. This is a massive legal battle, as you can imagine, and loads of people from all over the world are behind it. Please search for Unburnable wherever you get your podcasts, or visit savethearctic.org to get involved. I'm also delighted that today's podcast is sponsored by Tide.co. Let's face it, if you run a small business, the high street banks are just rubbish, aren't they? Weeks to set up an account, unjustified fees, no features you need, and just so slow. At Tide.co, you don't have to put up with this any longer. Contact them today to take advantage of this special offer for listeners to this podcast for six months of free transfers. Let's be clear, that's a 100% free account for six months before moving to a pay-as-you-go account with no monthly fees ever. To take advantage of this great offer, please head to tide.co forward slash true crime and use the promo mode true crime. That's tide.co forward slash true crime and use the promo code true crime. Today's case is based in Helensborough, an attractive small seaside town set in beautiful scenery on Scotland's west coast. It's around 25 miles northwest of Glasgow and faces south towards Greenock from the Firth of Clyde, which is approximately three miles wide at this point. We are going back to July 2011, so let's put the case in context by looking at the music we were listening to at the time. Or not. The UK charts were topped by Wanted with Glad You Came. Top spot in the US was Party Rock Anthem by LMFAO, featuring Lauren Bennett and Goon Rock. Adele's album 21 topped the album chart in Australia, Canada and most of the rest of the world. And in the news this month, Harry Potter and the Deathly Hallows Part 2, the last Harry Potter film, premiered in London. The Space Shuttle Atlantis was launched in the final mission of the US Space Shuttle program. And Norway was a victim of terrible attacks, if you remember. Two attacks. The first, a bomb blast targeting government buildings in central Oslo. The second, that horrendous massacre at a youth camp on an island. In the UK this year, the whole nation has been rocked by events at Grenfell Tower. Of course, this fire was of massive, deadly proportions. But if you've ever seen any fire in a residential area, you'll know just how scary it is. 
the heat, the noise, the smells, utterly terrifying. And at around 5am on July the 24th, 2011, a taxi driver was on the streets of Helensborough when he saw just that. A flat on fire with thick smoke billowing into the early morning sky. He quickly realised that there were people inside as he spotted two people at the windows. He recognised one of the people as Thomas Sharkey Sr., who was standing out on a window ledge by the lower window, whilst another younger man had his face pressed against an upper window, with his head out of the window, shouting for help. The taxi driver drove round to the back of the flats, where he saw flames engulfing the property. He dialed 999, and when he returned to the front, Thomas Sharkey Sr. stood on the ledge of the first floor window, but the face that had been at the upper window was now nowhere to be seen. Diane White, who lived next door to the flat, was woken at about 5am to the sound of noise which she described as, it was just shouting, it was like, get out, get out. She knew the Sharkey neighbour, of course, who lived in the flat, and they were Tommy Sharkey Sr., his wife Angela, their 21-year-old son Thomas, and their eight-year-old daughter Bridget. When she woke, Diane heard Thomas Jr. shouting for his dad, but then it stopped, and she never heard his voice again. The firefighters first on the scene reported smoke so thick they could not see their hands in front of their faces, and the temperatures reached more than 900 degrees. They had to carry out their search by touch, making their way up and down the charred staircase, putting themselves at some considerable danger. Neighbours gathered outside as the firefighters brought out Thomas Jr. and Bridget, but tragically, both siblings were to die at the scene. The firefighters also brought out their mum, Angela Sharkey, who was rushed to hospital unconscious, as was their dad, Tommy Sr. Angela was to survive, but Tommy Sr. had suffered 30% burns and died in hospital six days later from multiple organ failure. Like his children, he'd been killed by inhaling the thick, hot smoke and gases from the fire. As he lay dying in a hospital bed, 55-year-old Tommy Sharkey broke down in tears when he was told that his children were dead. Thomas's older son Richard told how he is haunted by the image of his bandage-bound father as he attempted to take in the news of the deaths. He said, I sat there and watched my dad's heart breaking in front of me. I would never, ever get that sight out of my head. There were tears rolling down his face. It was like he was crumbling away. All the memories I have of him have been taken over by that horrible picture of him. Worse news was to follow for Tommy's widow, Angela, when she received the devastating news that the fire had been started deliberately. How must that feel? Bad enough that your family has been taken away in a tragic accident, but a deliberate act of violence... Angela spoke about her lovely daughter Bridget, who loved the brownies, singing and dancing, saying that she shouldn't even have been there that night. Bridget had been at her friend's for a sleepover, but she didn't really do sleepovers well. So at 10 o'clock p.m. the phone rang and her friend's dad said, she's not settled, I'm going to bring her home. Angela said that Bridget went straight to bed when she returned, as she had a friend's birthday party at a farm the next day. Paying tribute to her daughter, she said, I don't know what it was about her. She was just brilliant. Everybody thinks their kids are brilliant, but she was really brilliant. She was right in the middle of everything, everywhere. A typical girl. She had everybody just where she wanted them, 
One of the proudest days in little Bridget's short life was when she celebrated her first Holy Communion along with her friends and family, but then just weeks later she was dead. Terribly poignant messages were left outside the fire-damaged flat. One beside a brownie t-shirt said, Go well and safely from all your brownie friends. In the days following the tragedy, Bridget's heartbroken classmates and pals from Helensburg Brownies made tearful trips to the scene. Anne Chalmers, the head teacher at her school, St Joseph's, said, Bridget was a beautiful child, very talented, an excellent all-rounder, an enthusiastic pupil who was a lovely singer, dancer and artist. She'll be missed by all at St Joseph's Primary. It's heartbreaking to hear, isn't it? Tommy Jr. was also a talented young man. Aged just 21 when he was murdered, he was back home from his second year on a golf scholarship in the US, where he had just picked up the prize for most improved player on his course at Georgia Southern University. The weekend of the fire, he was competing at his local club at Helensborough and had gone to bed early the night of the tragedy as he had to be up early the next day to compete in another competition. As you can imagine, the local community was appalled and they demanded answers and they wanted them quickly. The police investigation quickly began and immediately it was a large operation. Named Operation Endeavour, it had 70 officers assigned to the case. They quickly confirmed Angela's story that both children had gone to bed early the night before the fire whilst Angela read a book. She'd popped her head around both their doors around midnight when she went to bed and both of her children were sound asleep. Her husband Tommy was still out when she went to bed. He was in the local pub over the road and locals told police that he was in a great mood that evening, even taking centre stage for a bit of karaoke before heading off for a takeaway and arriving home sometime after 1am. Rather than wake his sleeping wife, he fell asleep on the sofa on the lower level of the flat. Police estimated that at about 5am, a small amount of petrol was poured through the letterbox of the flat and set on fire. There was no other outside door, so whoever did this knew there was a good chance they would kill the occupants. This was no warning shot to the family. The police knew Tommy Sr., and from the start of the inquiry, they thought that the motive for the murders lay in his background, and they started to research him. They found that Tommy Sr. was widely known locally as Tea Bags, a reference to tenor bags of drugs, and that he'd been jailed for supplying cannabis in the early 1990s. The cannabis offence happened when Tommy had only been married to Angela for five years, and Thomas Jr. was only three years old, when a parcel of cannabis was delivered to their home. Soon after, there was another arrival at their Helensborough house, the police, and Tommy Sr. was jailed for four years. He was released from the slammer in 1995, the year that Thomas Jr. started school, and then his beloved daughter Bridget was born a few years later, in September 2002. Although some say he was set up on the cannabis charge, after all, the police did sweep incredibly quickly. Many others suggest that Tommy had been heavily involved in the drug scene for a long time. When he came out of prison, he became involved in more legitimate business ventures. He had growing interests in a number of areas, including a kebab shop and a nightclub. However, as we know, running these sorts of businesses is not easy. Are those a vegan? 
I guess a kebab shop probably isn't really my thing. And by 2004, Tommy was declared bankrupt after his latest venture, a Photoshop, seized trading. Tommy decided that the pub game was for him and he bought a pub called the Mariners. All was going to plan, Tommy had bought furniture, he was hiring staff and then disaster struck. The pub was burnt down in April 2010. If this wasn't bad enough, Tommy had no insurance and so all the money he had ploughed into this venture was lost, all gone just like that. At the time of his death, Tommy had reinvented himself as a devout family man who owned an industrial cleaning company and he raised money for charity, especially local disadvantaged children. But in Helensborough, the police investigating the murders kept on hearing rumours that Tommy was still dealing drugs until his death. And it was through his connections in the drugs trade where police felt very early on that they would be led to the killer of Tommy and his children. Among the false leads and shady characters mentioned by witnesses and informants, there was one drug dealer whose name was consistently mentioned to police, Scott Snowden. Snowden had enjoyed a stable, loving upbringing with his family near Lot Lomond. One school friend said of him, For the first couple of years at high school, Scott was quite quiet. His parents are nice, hard-working people and he was brought up well. He was spoilt as he was an only child. He'd always be wearing the best of gear and the best trainers. His dad used to teach judo of the kids and Scott was involved in that when he was younger. He was a badminton champion and he played at county level. At that time he was hanging around with a decent group of pals but Scott started going off the rails in his mid to late teens. He started hanging around with a dodgy crowd and a few years later was involved in drug dealing. He was mingling with gangsters and peddling cocaine. He started acting the hard man but had nothing to back it up with as far as I could see. I left school at 16 and then saw him again outside a nightclub a few years later when four or five guys were trying to smash his head in with bottles. He was getting a real kicking and me and a couple of guys helped him get away. He was lucky that he didn't end up in hospital but he still began shouting threats at these guys, telling them he was going to get them back. At first, I thought he was just a loudmouth, but then I began hearing stories about him hanging around with gangsters from Glasgow and dealing coke. To the outside world, Snowden, by now in his mid-thirties, was a respectable businessman and father of two. A good demonstration of this was in 2010, when Snowden paid for a lavish three-day £30,000 wedding at a castle near Falkirk for him and his bride Gillian. One guest said, There was nothing to suggest that Scott Snowden getting married that day was in any way a criminal. There was no one there who could point a finger at and say he or she looked dodgy. If any of his criminal friends or associates were there, they were kept well hidden. Everyone was either family or friends from his school days. His best man Paul had known him since they were both at primary school and they kept in touch. He made a great best man. It was a perfect wedding and no expense was spared. Snowden was the epitome of the successful young man. There was champagne and strawberries immediately after the ceremony and there were pipers and dancers brought from Helensborough. It was also ordinary and normal. It was as if he wanted to keep both sides of his life separate particularly at his own wedding. 
I'm fairly certain that none of his family and friends knew he was involved in any criminality. But the reality was that Snowden was only earning £15,000 a year from his day job as a berthing master in a local marina, certainly not enough to fund his lifestyle. His real money came from his sideline in drug dealing, intimidation and insurance fraud through starting fires. As detectives delved further into Snowden, they found a disturbing pattern emerging over recent years. As his influence grew and Snowden started dealing with major figures in the Glasgow underworld, he grew in confidence and as well as making money from the drugs business, he became incredibly thin-skinned and he started to take personal revenge on anyone who crossed him, however minor the perceived offence. The police uncovered a catalogue of suspected offences of Snowden's revenge. When Snowden's offer to provide security on a house that wasn't yet finished was refused, the house was set on fire in July 2008. The year after, Snowden had been thrown out of a local pub, the Garth Inn. Shortly after, it was gutted by a deliberate fire. A few months later, in September 2009, a nearby house was set on fire shortly after the owners had argued with Snowden. A yachtsman had his home set on fire on September 6, 2009, after he challenged Snowden's competency as a birthmaster at the marina. There's more. In January 2011, Snowden had another argument with a man living in a flat in Helensborough, and shortly after, this person's flat was also destroyed by a deliberate fire. Richard McKinney, a fellow employee at the marina, complained about Snowden's performance at work and then had his face slashed by a stranger in 2010. Another man, Michael McGinley, and his family, they were subjected to a campaign of violence after he punched Snowden in the pub. Ammonia was thrown in his face. His family home was set alight in January 2011 and an attempt made to ruin his sister's wedding by attempting to set fire to the reception venue in June 2011. On every occasion, Snowden had a rock-solid alibi, being out of town or even out of the country. It was a dark joke among the criminal fraternity to be extra careful when Snowden left the area as a fire was likely to break out. So as well as instigating these acts of revenge, Snowden didn't get his own precious hands tarnished. It was now clear to police that Snowden was using accomplices to carry out all his dirty work. Investigators quickly discovered a link between Tommy Sr. and Snowden. When Tommy was preparing to enter the pub trade, he'd barred Snowden from his new pub, which meant that under the local pub watch scheme, Snowden would be barred from all pubs in the town. This clearly wasn't pleasing to Snowden, as a man of his reputation needed to be seen in the pubs around town. Banned from every drinking hole in his hometown, clearly didn't fit his big-time gangster image. Informants told police that Snowden was furious with Tommy Sharkey for this perceived slight, and this is why Snowden arranged for Tommy's pub to be burnt down. Snowden waited until all the furniture had been installed to create the most possible financial damage to Tommy. There was also evidence of a clash they'd had in a cocaine deal in a car park as recently as 2010. In this deal, Tommy handed over 10 bags of samples as opposed to 3 or 4, 
and this meant that if police had swooped on the deal, Snowden would not have been able to claim they were just for his personal use and he would have likely spent time in jail. Snowden was absolutely livid and he told his associates that he would exact revenge. And as we have seen, Snowden isn't the sort of man who had any intention of acting in a proportionate manner. Then there was another drugs-related incident. Tommy's niece owed £1,200 to Snowden for cocaine. Tommy's half-brother asked Tommy to help with this tricky situation and gave Tommy £500 to hand over to the coke dealer. Snowden was seriously unimpressed with this, especially when he heard how Tommy had bragged to people how he had sorted Snowden out and there'd be no more problems with him. As he wanted to be the top man on his patch, Snowden did not think he could be shown such little respect and he again vowed to take revenge on Tommy. At this time, Tommy had fallen out of his cousin Mark Sharkey. And as an aside, this isn't like the family falling out you or me may have. It resulted in Mark stabbing Tommy in the back. But Snowden knew about this feud and he told associates how he planned to get Tommy shot and then frame Mark Sharkey, Tommy's cousin, for the murder. Snowden initially planned that Tommy be shot by one of his gang at a charity sports dinner in Helensborough, attended by former Rangers and Scotland goalkeeper Andy Gorham, Premier League referee Kenny Clark and a thousand guests. But Snowden was put off from ordering a hit when he was told there'd be tight security. One of the gang brought this up with Snowden the week after the event and Snowden replied, don't you worry, I've got something else in mind for him. But although police knew that Snowden was behind the attack that killed the Sharkey family, he'd been in Mexico on the day of the murders and they had to prove who'd poured the petrol through the door that morning. The best evidence they had was CCTV, which showed a middle-aged man in the area at the key time in a hooded top with a distinctive swagger. When shown on the BBC TV programme Crime Watch, witnesses called in to name a known associate of Snowden, Robert Jennings. Detective Constable Jennifer Bell, a CCTV expert who'd worked with the Met Police on the 7-7 London bombings, studied the footage several thousand times. She then saw Jennings walking down a corridor in the police station when he'd been detained and identified him as the person in the footage because of his distinctive walk. The CCTV evidence, along with evidence from other witnesses who were told of their conversations with Jennings and Snowden around the murders, was enough for the police to arrest and charge Snowden and Jennings. Their trial began at the High Court in Glasgow. The case against Snowden and Jennings suggested they had little regard for their victims, not just those who had died in the terrible house fire, but all the other revenge attacks we discussed earlier. The pair denied the charges, claiming that prosecutors had failed to produce a motive and that several witnesses had lied when giving evidence. Snowden claimed he was in Mexico when the fire started and Jennings claims that he was home alone. The jury of ten women and five men didn't believe them and they took around eight and a half hours to return a unanimous verdict of guilty on the charges of murder and attempted murder. As the verdicts were read out, there were tears and cries of yes from Angela Sharkey and her friends and family. Snowden was found guilty of six other charges of fire-raising, three assaults, one breach of the peace and supplying cocaine, 
Jennings was convicted of two assaults, one charge of fire-raising and one of supplying cocaine. Lord Matthews sentenced Scott Snowden and Robert Jennings to life imprisonment for murder and attempted murder. The terms were set at 33 years and 29 years respectively. He said, You've been convicted of what is without doubt the most appalling crime I've ever been involved with in my professional career. The murder by fire of three quarters of a family. However, not only was yesterday the second anniversary of that dreadful crime, it also marked the culmination of a campaign characterised by violence, revenge, intimidation and cowardice. The evidence showed plainly that you, Mr Snowden, in the face of any slight or insult or setback, would exact terrible revenge, at times swift and at other times when the opportunity presented itself. These crimes were cowardly enough in themselves, but it's also a common feature of them that you cynically recruited others to do your dirty work for you, making sure you had a cast-iron alibi. It may be that you thought that you were safe from prosecution, hoping that those who knew about your conduct would not alert the authorities. If that's what you thought, the fatal fire put an end to such aspirations. You, Mr Jennings, had no discernible motive to become involved in the matters of which you stand convicted, but you were nonetheless prepared either to carry them out or to assist in arranging for others to do them. As far as the fatal fire is concerned, while it may be that you did not intend all the consequences which ensued, your actions in setting fire to the only door of the house in the early hours of the morning virtually guaranteed that the outcome would be as terrible as it proved to be. Speaking at a press conference following the verdicts, Assistant Chief Constable Nicholson said that while the thorough and comprehensive investigation into the fatal fire had resulted in the convictions of Snowden and Jennings, some of the previous incidents had not been investigated to that high standard. This, he said, was partly as police did not have that kind of resource available that would subsequently be poured into solving the Sharkey tragedy, and also because of local people's reluctance to speak out against Snowden until his vendetta against Thomas Sharkey went too far. Nicholson added, People were frightened to come forward. There was an element of fear on the street until it went too far. The deaths in particular of Thomas Sharkey Jr., and Bridget were just too much. In an interview with the Scottish paper The Daily Record on the second anniversary of her husband's death, Angela Sharkey told how she has struggled with the heartache of losing her family, saying, The first Christmas was very difficult, to say the least. I was invited to switch on the lights in Helensborough. I was thinking mostly of the kids. I would have taken Bridget with me and she'd have loved it. One of the lights was outside the URC church, and you could see it from our flat. Bridget thought that light was specially for her, if only she knew. Angela, who has now returned to work, and has coped thanks to the help of her family, friends and colleagues, said, I know I'll never be normal, but I'll just try to be as normal as I can. I'm so fortunate to have had Thomas and Bridget, and cherished the years we had together. She also defended her husband Tommy, after the trial that had shown that Snowden and Tommy had been locked in a drugs-related dispute in the months leading up to the blaze. Angela said, Deep down, Tommy's heart was in the right place. If anything went wrong, he would fix it. People came to him with problems saying, Tommy will fix it. But he should have been looking after his own life. 
He didn't have the faintest idea that there were people out there who had it in for him. He never mentioned Snowden once to me. One other point after the trial was the background and criminal history of murderer Billy Jennings. The parents of a man called Dick Beattie called on Jennings to admit his role in the death of their treasured son, who was found murdered behind a church in 1993. Jennings's drug dealer brother Eddie was charged with the murder, but the case against him was dropped due to lack of evidence. Police strongly suspected that Eddie was the killer, and he acted with an accomplice, which Debiti suspected was Billy Jennings. The difficulty, of course, in securing a conviction was that the evidence was circumstantial and the reputation of the Jennings family meant that witnesses were very unwilling to come forward. In a cruel twist, another of the BT's sons, Kevin, who was 25 at the time, was horrifically stabbed by Eddie Jennings in a bar in November 1993. Eddie Jennings was later jailed for seven years for Kevin's attempted murder. So what do you make of what we've heard today? Do you agree with me that fire seems a particularly cowardly way to hurt someone? Looking back at the case, of course our sympathies have to go out to Angela Sharkey who has lost her two children. I can't help but wonder how she feels about the police not convicting Snowden before he murdered her family. They had so many clear opportunities to do so. As for Tommy Senior, how do you feel about him? Many of you will no doubt say that if you are involved in the drugs trade, you have to be prepared for violence as you are often dealing with violent, volatile and ruthless criminals. But even so, at the level he was involved, the punishment inflicted on him by Snowden is clearly completely disproportionate. But we've seen similar disproportionate violence in other cases on this podcast. For example, in episode 43, A Terrible Revenge, Colin Gunn arranged the murder of John and Joan Sterland, the parents of somebody who had angered him. A clear, massive overreaction. Is it a combination of the small inner circles of these gangsters, where they hold complete power and no one disagrees with them, along with their arrogance at avoiding capture by police, that gives them a sense of being able to do just what they want? I'm not sure, but I guess extreme violence is an occupational hazard of being involved in this sort of business. In pubs and restaurants, you must always favour the seats looking at the door. And those weird noises we all hear at 3am, well, they have to take on extra significance, right? And what of Snowden and Jennings? Frankly, who cares? They won't come out of jail until they're old men, if at all. But I wonder how Snowden's wife now feels. I'm not sure if she stayed with him or not following his conviction. Did she know what he was really doing and where all the money came from? Surely she must have done, mustn't she? Or maybe not. And most sadly of all, it means that both Bridget and Thomas will never have the chance to reach their full potential. And it sounds like they could have achieved a lot in their lives, but now tragically, we'll never know. I hope you've enjoyed this episode of the UK True Crime Weekly podcast. Please head to our Facebook group where you can talk about all aspects of UK true crime and this case as well. You are very, very welcome. And if you would like to support the show, please head to patreon.com slash UKTrueCrime, where for just £3 a month, you can gain access to eight, soon to be nine, full-length bonus episodes, 
as well as other exclusive content. So until next week, I'm off to catch up on the traffic reports from Radio Norwich. Aha! Cheerio! And remember, be kind to everyone as we never know just what they're going through in their personal lives. Bye for now.